The holiday season is now upon us. The year is absolutely flying by, and the news never stops. That's why we at the DSR Network have expanded our programming to cover even more of the world's events. We hope you will consider supporting our work by becoming a member. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the member-only Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of November, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code STUFFING at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code STUFFING. Thank you very much for your support. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. It's that time of the week when we want to turn our attention to things political, and to do that, of course, we always try to bring into it our friend and guru, Simon Rosenberg. How are you doing, Simon? I'm well, David. Thanks for the opportunity to be here. It's great. I saw you uh, You tweeted out something yesterday, and that sort of led to my thinking about this, and that was there have been four polls. In the four polls, Joe Biden was winning. I've been <laughs> seeing all sorts of stories about it. You know? <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a little bit surprising, to be honest, uh, given the amount of time and energy we've spent over the last six weeks talking about how Trump for the first time is beating Biden in polls. And, you know, this week we had four independent polls. None of them are associated with the Democratic Party. Two are weekly tracks, highly credible weekly tracks, The Economist and Morning Consult, all showing Biden with a lead now. Um, And in the two most important of those four polls, uh, Biden gained four points over in the last week in the morning console poll and three points in the economist YouGov poll, which is dramatic movement. And so what it means is that now, today, Joe Biden is leading in the presidential election, in my view. Um, he's got a little bit of momentum behind him. Trump is no longer, you can no longer credibly say that Trump is leading in the presidential election. And yes, we're all the caveats apply, right? We're a year out. Polls can't predict the future, but they can tell you what's happening today. And what's happening today is good for Democrats. Yeah. You know, we're not a year out. We're now 11 months. I mean, you know, it's coming fast. It's coming real fast. I mean, Next month, I don't know when are the first primaries in mid mid January. I mean, we're gonna Republicans are going to be voting. I think their last debate is or the last debate before the first voting is is uh, next week. I think, and then they they start their primary season starts mid January with Iowa, and so it's coming soon. I mean, people are going to be voting for president in six weeks. Um, but it's like it's Christmas. <laughs> it's polls. It's you know. I mean, it's <laughs> it's it's primaries. Is that all over? Are we done? I mean, is you know that just going to be Trump, or, or is 
Do you think that's a- very hard to see? I mean, let, let me let's talk about that for a minute because I think this is another one of those kinds of um, uh, urban legends or sort of false kind of impressions that are in our discourse. Joe Biden in his primary is polling in the high 70s, meaning that if you poll him against other Democrats, no matter who you name, he's up in the high 70s, low 80s. He doesn't have a serious opponent. Robert Kennedy tried to run against him, was so unsuccessful that he got out of the Democratic primary and is running as an independent. And so Biden is very strong inside the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party is strong. We're unified. We've been winning elections all over the country. Trump, who is as well known as Biden, essentially is running as an incumbent, is only at 60% in his primary. He has real people challenging him. He's under 50% in Iowa, New Hampshire, and South Carolina. So it means that at this point, you know, we the perception's been Biden's weak at 80 and Trump is strong at 60, right? <laughs> Which is the way the media works these days. But Biden, Trump is weaker than he appears. Joe Trippi's been doing a very good job at making this case that Trump at 60 means that 40% of Republicans are not supporting him right now. And in the three early states, it's more than 50%. Now, he it's the worst possible scenario for the Republicans because he's winning by enough that he probably can't be beaten. But this notion that he's a strong candidate and doing well in the Republican primary is not true. And the idea that a party that has already splintered, I mean, anyone who watches MSNBC, a third of the people we watch on TV are former Republicans. They're you know, the former Republican brand has become a major part of our political discourse. Liz Cheney may end up endorsing Joe Biden. Mitt Romney said he's not going to be voting for Trump. There could be a very large anti-Trump Republican, never Trumper, never MAGA movement next year that could dwarf what happened in 2020 and 2022 because Trump is far more dangerous. And you're seeing already the capacity for the Republican Party to splinter next year. It's not only in Trump's 40% that are opposing him at this point, it's also the abortion issue, which we just saw in Ohio, for example, splintering the Republican coalition. There are going to be abortion ballot initiatives all over the country. And I think it's far more likely in 2024 that the Republican Party struggles to pull their coalition together than it is for us. We both have work to do. Neither party is where they want to be. But again, in every way possible, when I look at all this, I would so much rather be us than them as we head into 2024. Yeah, me too, because, you know, it means we can read and stuff. Anyway, <laughs> let's, uh, let's uh, you know, uh, discuss, you know, a long shot in that regard before I move on to talking about no labels for a second. But what if, you know, Trump does something really dumb, you know, and and all of a sudden Nikki Haley emerges as the candidate? Seems to me Nikki Haley is the only viable alternative right now in the Republican Party. She's kind of edging around, being in second place. Some places, DeSantis is still ahead of her, but he doesn't seem to have any upside. So do, 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 do you fear a non-Trump Republican candidacy? No. And the reason why, so first of all, all of you who worked hard in Virginia in November to deliver what was a really remarkable performance for us in Virginia played a role in this because Youngkin, if he had had a good election on November 7th, would have emerged as a potential alternative to Trump with very deep pockets 
uh, the ability to raise enormous amounts of money, you know, who's very popular, by the way, in Virginia. I mean, he's got strong approval rating in Virginia in a blue state, you know, lean blue state. And we took Yunkin off the table in 2024 by the strong performance of the Democratic Party. And so everyone who participated in that, we also did enormous damage in Virginia to that what Republicans hoped would be sort of their Houdini-like, Houdini-like escape from the abortion problem, which was this 15-week compromise they were floating, that also failed. And so the November elections actually were significant in terms of 2024 because it basically left them after DeSantis's horrific performance, it left the people who didn't like Trump with only one alternative, which was Nikki Haley. She's certainly second helping <laughs> or is not in any way near the kind of candidate they need because her capacity to, if she were to somehow win the nomination, to bring the MAGA part of the Republican Party along with her to build a winning coalition, it's unimaginable given how much she has attacked Trump, how she's taken very diametrically opposed positions. She's just stylistically very different than Trump. And I think it just showcases how difficult it is right now for any Republican to unify the Republican Party. Trump has enormous resistance and has had enormous resistance in the last several elections. And any never-Trump candidate would have to win and then get Trump's endorsement and bring MAGA along, which is an Olympian task that would require a political level of skill and capacity that I think is not present with any of the potential alternatives to Trump at this point. It's all conceptually possible, David. I think realistically, it's going to be very, very hard. Okay, so we, I was looking at those four polls that you talked about. Biden was up by two points in them. Now I have my Simon Rosenberg decoder ring, and so I always <laughs> add a few points, a few points to that. But um, you know, it's still single digits. Yeah, and you look at something like no labels, and you think, uh oh, particularly if it's got a presence in the five or six states that are the battleground states. uh, And they've actually got, you know, people like Joe Manchin, you know, sort of saying, well, maybe I'll do this. Um, How's that going to work? I think we have to recognize that when we talk about everybody other than Trump and Biden, we now have four or five potential candidates. I mean, Joe Biden may be running against six candidates, in early next year, depending on how things go. Jill Stein and Cornell West are in. Robert Kennedy is in. We don't know what's going to happen with no labels. They don't have a candidate yet. And I think some of the rationale for their being has been um, damaged or, or weakened by the emergence of these other third-party candidates and also the emergence of Romney and Liz Cheney potentially and sort of moderate Republicans backing in all likelihood, backing Biden, right, which sort of, again, takes away some of the rationale of no labels. I think I think the way I think about this, David, is twofold. One is Biden is going to have to run an unprecedented presidential campaign because he's going to have to run against potentially four or five candidates. Because I think Cornell West and Jill Stein and Robert Kennedy and no labels are not running to be president. They're running to defeat Joe Biden. And I don't think they're running for sending any sort of cause. There's no central reason they're running other than to try to beat him. So he could have three or four legitimate opponents um, next year, uh, five uh, maybe. And how you run a presidential campaign in that regard, I don't know. I mean, no one's ever had to do it. It's 
going to require enormous um, skill and capacity uh, and intensity every day. Because I think these candidates are not really running to get votes. They're running to create message vehicles to hurt Biden. And and if you need any, if I'm, if you think that that's Simon, that's unfair, I mean, just go look at what Jill Stein is saying. I mean, she's calling Biden a war criminal and only attacking Biden and saying nothing about Trump, right? So I think these are message vehicles for that are targeting narrow demographic audiences to try to weaken, because they know that Trump can't get more than 45, 46% of the votes, so they've got to take Biden down. But the counter to that, is what I said earlier, which is the most significant and proven splinter party, rogue party, third party movement in America are the never Trump or never MAGAs. And they're with us. And I think that there is in the analysis of this, this has been far, you know, somebody who's been on the ground working in elections in the last couple of years. I can tell you the impact of, of what, you know, the bulwark has done and Bill Crystal and Liz Cheney, it's significant. There is now a significant chunk of the Republican Party four, five, six percent, that is not going to vote for Trump. And in a national election, that's a big number. And that may be bigger than any of the other third party efforts that take away from Biden. And so, and the thing is, this this effort, the Never Trump or Never MAGA movement, is aligned with us. And they're part of our broader coalition. And so I think this is a very complex situation that's emerging, that we have to be very open-minded, that we don't really know how it's all going to play out. And this notion that this is going to be like 20. 2000 or 2016, where there's two candidates and a single third party candidate. That's not the case. This is not analogous in any way. And we have to be very open minded about how this is going to play out. I mean, obviously, I think the idea that there are now four, five candidates, whatever the hell Dean Phillips is doing, right, aligned against Biden is not great. And it means that it's for all of us, and we talk about this every time I come on, David, is that for those of us who can amplify Joe Biden to sell his accomplishments to our to our networks this work of being loud being an information warrior for the for our democracy is more important than it's ever been because of these aligned opponents against biden in 2024 uh, yeah no there's no question about that well let me ask you two or three questions about the biden side of the campaign if we have time i'll then get to a congressional question or two but yeah. Um, let me start with a positive and then go to a couple of negatives. But, you know, you get the same things I do from the White House talking points. The, the economic talking point, literally one just landed in my inbox a moment ago. And, and here's what it says. Annual inflation fell to its lowest level in more than two and a half years. Monthly inflation was zero. Energy prices fell last month with gas prices down $1.77 from their peak during Putin's war. Grocery inflation fell to lowest levels. Disposable income rose almost 4%. The economy grew. And by, by the way, this is another one of these stories that like, <laughs> why is this story? Not? The economy grew by more than 5% in the last quarter. <laughs> 14 million jobs created. Unemployment under 4%. That's not good. That's not you know above average. That's freaking amazing. <laughs> you know, you know, this story, I don't know why this story doesn't get out there. And you know, I keep reading these polls where they say, well, you know, the well, people, and in Europe, people did, aren't feeling it. Did you see oh. that Europe, the inflation numbers came out today in Europe and they were substantially lower than all of the projections, right? So Europe actually had 
a really, really good inflation number today, which was really important for the Ukrainian war, right? Because part of Putin's whole strategy was to drive up inflation and costs in Europe and the United States to weaken our resolve to, you know, uh, in fighting the war against him. And Europe just had an extraordinary inflation number, right, uh, as well, to add to your litany of amazing economic news today. Yeah, well, I mean, but so the, the economic story is amazing. Yeah. There is no reason to assume it won't actually get better next year. Yeah. People who had, you know, uh, recessions on the horizon or slowdowns on the horizon or soft landings on the horizon, they've all taken a step back. They don't think that's going to happen. Um, that, that's got to be bad news for Republicans or yeah. is will the media just not recover it? You know, no, I listen, mean, here's how I th- here's how I view the election right now. Joe Biden is a good president. The country is better off. The Democratic Party is strong in winning elections all over the country. And they have Trump, right? The worst candidate to run for president in the history of the United States. And I think that I look at all of this and I am optimistic about, you know, playing this forward into 2024 and our ability to win the election. Let's talk about the economic issues for a minute, because this has been what I'm excited about is there's actually now a serious debate happening among elite media about what is actually really happening with the economy and are they getting it right in the same way we were sort of talking about polls a year ago. And I think there's something analogous to what happened with polling a year ago where we're beginning to realize that potentially some of the the sort of simple measures that we use, you know, like in a poll, you know, we learned that Joe Biden's approval rating, which was supposed to tell us what happened in the 2022 election, actually didn't because there was this other data that presented a clearer picture. The same thing I think is happening with economic data. If you just ask the simple question is, do you think the economy is getting better or worse, right? I think that question is no longer really as descriptive and powerful as people believe it is. And let me give you a couple of reasons why. One, and this is in the Economist YouGov poll this week, when you ask Democrats for the approval of Joe Biden on the economy, he's at 75%. (laughs) So this idea that the whole country's down and disappointed in him is and that it's all based on lived experience. The lived experience of Democrats is that his job approval on the economy is 75%. The lived experience of Republicans is that the, his approval is 18%, right? So it can't be based on lived experience if Republicans and Democrats are living in different countries, basically. Second, and I think this is uh, really Im- important about the data, when you ask questions of voters about their life satisfaction and their job satisfaction and their satisfaction with their how much money they make, those numbers are up in the high 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, right? So when you ask the question about like, how are you doing? Are things good in your lives? Are you happy? The numbers are actually remarkably positive, right? And then third, if there was enormous discontent and if people were out with pitchforks and really angry, then why do we keep kicking their ass in every election over the last 18 months? And it's a serious problem for this analysis that there is some kind of massive discontent in the electorate. There simply isn't. There wasn't in 2022. It was a status quo election. The party in power actually did remarkably well. In 2023, it was a blue year. We won everywhere. The Republicans have virtually nothing that they can point to over this entire year of elections that went well for them. Again, the party in power was actually outperformed expectations. If people were angry and pissed off, 
It would be the opposite, right? Third is that we now have a lot of data. So Morning Consult just did, but they did the approval ratings of governors and senators. And almost no governors or senators are under 50% right now, meaning that, again, there is no manifestation anywhere in the data that people are angry and deeply discontent. This is a big problem for the Republicans, whose, whose candidate is arguing that everything is going to hell and we need a revolution, you know, essentially a dictatorship, right, to fix everything. People don't think things are actually going to hell. They're not doing it in the way they're spending money. They're not doing it in other measures of polling that I think is actually far more revealing than this simplistic question. And so I think that people are acting as if the economy is good, regardless of what they're saying in surveys. And that's and that's what matters to us. We are look, we're in a very strong position, David, I think, going into 2024, far stronger than they are. I'd much rather be us than them. But I don't want to be Pollyannish about this. We have a lot of work to do. There's a big chunk of our coalition that is wandering around out there, you know, that have left the left the safety of our little walled garden, and we got to go get them and bring them back. But the, that's a doable thing. Putting lipstick on the Trump pig and making him look like a serious presidential candidate—that's really hard. Well, you know, I mean, that is all good news. It does, you know, make me think of the, you know, that Twitter account, New York Times pitch bot in which I can just envision the headline in the New York Times, you know, are Americans growing too prosperous and why this is a problem for Biden? You know, it's it's like, you know, you, 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 you can't win with some of these analyses. But let me, let me take a couple of slices that have been yeah. in the news recently. Yeah. Here's a slice. Um, Biden embraced Israel too hard. Uh, young people... Um, and uh, people of Muslim background uh, and and uh, some other core groups are alienated by this. Uh, they feel uh, the U.S. is participating in, um, uh, you know, uh, unfair, bloody war against the Palestinians. Um, and uh, you know, this could this could have an effect on the vote. You've seen people yep. tweeting out, you know. Uh, I'm not voting for Biden now because he's 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 embraced the Israeli war machine. Right. Is is this really an issue? It is an issue. How much of an issue it's going to be a year from now um, is very unclear. Or eleven months from now. I mean, we've got a long way to go in this conflict, uh, and many things can change. They already have. I mean, we are in the midst of an actual ceasefire, and humanitarian aid is flowing and hostages are coming home. There's lots of good news coming from a place where there was a lot of bad news, not so recent, you know, not so long ago. And so I don't know that we have any idea how this is going to play out over the next 11 months. A lot will depend on what happens in the conflict itself. And I think that one of the things you and I agree with violently is the idea that somehow our fate as a party is now somehow hitched to Bibi Netanyahu is one of the most you know, disturbing and terrifying things that we could have possibly imagined. I mean, a, a disgraced, you know, uh, extremist who's um, who has you know warred against the Democratic Party is now has some influence over what happens in our election next year. I think Biden's handled all this very well. I think it's an incredibly difficult situation, and the good news is, as de you know, is that as much as there is discontent and that people are unhappy, uh, you know, some slice of our family is unhappy with what's happening. 
it's not broad. I mean, in the Economist YouGov poll that just came out yesterday, they track this every week. They ask the question about the Hamas-Israel war. You know, Democrats are still about 65, 25 for Biden on this. There has not been a significant erosion of support for him. It's gone up a little bit, but it's not, it's not, there's not a broad discontent. Among young people, uh, Biden is actually doing better with young people on the war than he is with any other age group. It's sort of, again, counterintuitive. But we have work to do. I mean, there is a big chunk of our coalition, 15, 20% of our coalition that is wandering from us now that we need to go get back. We have 11 months. We're going to have a lot of money. We, I think we've got strong arguments to make. And I think we'll get, you know, once it becomes Trump and Biden by early next year, I think a big chunk of that coalition, that wandering coalition is going to come home. But we are going to have work to do to get to where we want to be in this election. This I don't want to in any way Im- imply that I think this is going to be easy. I think we have a lot of work to do. But again, it's within the confines of a campaign. This is doable work and things that can get done um, because I think he's been a good president. And, and, I, and also, David, I think you know, we should welcome this debate uh, in the Democratic Party. We should show that we can have debates that are not, that don't become rancorous, right? And this has become rancorous in some cases, but in many cases, it's been very civil. And it's important, I think, for young people, and I have three Gen Z kids, to, I think the other thing this is doing, by the way, that may end up benefiting us is that it's waking up young people to politics um, in a way that may mean that we have actually much higher turnout of young people than lower turnout. It does. There's no guarantee that what's happening now is going to push people out of politics. It may actually bring more people in to politics. So these kinds of events do wake up people to the game and to recognizing this stuff really matters. And they've got to take a side, whatever side that is, or they've got to vote. So I'm not sold at this point that all of this is a net negative. Of course, this could metastasize into something dangerous for us. Um, but I don't think that it has, and I don't think it will, uh, if we manage it, and if Joe Biden does a good job in managing the conflict. Yeah, I want to. I want to say parenthetically, there. I had a conversation with a senior administration foreign policy official today. Had a conversation with another uh, sort of well-known columnist on this. Very important that the Democrats do whatever they can to take back the narrative on foreign policy. Um, the Biden administration foreign policy for the first three years was excellent. If it becomes dominated by Israel and Palestine, it will not be as excellent. It is a good idea for the United States to try to internationalize um, the resolution of this conflict as much extent as possible, because it's not going to happen soon. It's not going to be easy. Um, and the other areas of U.S. foreign policy um, are areas where there are some significant uh, achievements to point to, and that, frankly, in the long term, may be more important. Let me ask you another uh, another question, and this is super inside baseball, but it came up in both the conversations that I had this morning. Um, do we think the team that is managing the campaign for Joe Biden is ready for prime time. Does it need some new big players? Will it get them? I think we're in the early stages of the the Biden reelect. There's going to be time to build it out and to augment the team that's there. 
it's very small right now, so it's going to grow. I mean, I, they have a lot of choices to make about how they grow this thing. The most important thing, I think, is that the campaign has to turn on 100%. It, it is not fully on. It's not. It's a little bit, in my view, uh, um, it is not as far along, I think, as we would want it to be at this point. It's not, it's not dangerous. It's not scary. It's not bad. It's just that we they need to put our head down and go to work. And the campaign's got to start hiring people and putting people out in the States and doing all the things that campaigns do um, and get going. And I think that's, and, and, you know, I think it's, it, it is, it would, that's the most, I think of all the ways that we can, that the Biden campaign has to improve is that the most important is they just have to turn it on and get going. And what happens when you turn on a campaign is, you know, when you're a year out, right, you know, you need time to get the kinks out. You need to try things. You need to work on things. You, you know, these are like startups and, You've got to go to, you've got to start. I mean, the, to me, one of the worries about the Biden campaign is not having primaries, meaning that we won't, the staff won't get tested, right? There won't be these tests uh, and growth. Look at how Biden changed during the primaries in, in 2020, right? There was an enormous evolution of that campaign during the course of the primaries. We won't really have that opportunity this time, right? It's going to be one group of people, the election, the only election they really have is in the fall of 2024. And there's going to be a lot of time between now and then. And, and I think it's why they've got to figure out how to have some benchmarks and tests along the way to test the team, to make sure they're executing well and that they're getting it done so that if there are issues, right, we can, we can address them early on. And, and so I do, I do think this is, you know, I, I know everyone running the campaign. I know the political folks in the White House. These are very talented people. I think it's time to turn the campaign on and let them go do what they got to go do, I think. All right. Well, let me ask you one last question here that doesn't have to do with White House, doesn't have to do with presidential campaign, but does have to do with 2024. And that is um, the the congressional campaign, both the Senate and the, the House side of things. Uh, we've got a new Speaker of the House. We've been able to see him in place for a while. Uh, it does seem like he is from the crackpot wing of the Republican Party, um, although apparently he's not crackpotty enough for some of the people <laughs> in the crackpot wing who are getting frustrated that he hasn't done anything really insane yet. Um, uh, you know, the, the record that the House is going to have, according to everybody I talked to, is uh, nothing. They're not going to do anything next year. They may just do continuing resolutions every three months, um, uh, they may lose their um, uh, Daniel Webster in, ter- in the form of George Santos. You know, uh, uh, on, the, on, the, on, the, on the Senate side, Democrats are going to lose uh, Manchin. Uh, they may pick up Alred in Texas or something else, but it looks a little precarious. What's your outlook uh, uh, for the Hill? Yeah, so Navigator, which is a, a polling consortium on our side, it's center left, uh, and so that's the caveat in it. You know, it does polling every two weeks, and they also do these very large quarterly polls in the in the House battleground states. And their latest poll they just did at the end of October showed a substantial decline for the Republican congressional brand in the battlegrounds. Surprisingly, so I mean, this speaker fiasco they had was seen by voters and and it has hurt them and um it's it's significant i mean their numbers are terrible 
And if these numbers hold, we should flip the house. The house should flip over this, given where things are. And I know you've been able to spend some time with Hakeem Jeffries, and I know you know that he is a very able guy, that the handoff from Nancy to Hakeem and his team has been very successful. He has the respect and admiration of his peers in ways that are, it's incredibly impressive how warmly people speak of him, uh, his colleagues speak of him. And I think they've got a great campaign team. And so I'm very optimistic about our ability to take the House back in 2024. The Senate is going to be a jump ball. I mean, Manchin, we all knew Manchin wasn't going to run. I mean, it was it was 90% that he wasn't going to run. Um, and so we, you know, we're at 50-50 and we've got to hold every race. We've got to hold Ohio and Montana. We've got to hold, you know, Arizona and Nevada. I mean, we've got, you know, there is a there are some tough races that we have to hold and there isn't really an obvious pickup for us. So, you know, Texas and Florida are possible if our candidates, you know, perform at a very high level and turn those states and make them competitive. But the Senate is very much a jump ball and we could easily lose it. I mean, it's, we have to be honest about that, which is why winning the presidency and building up Joe Biden and flipping the house becomes so important because we have to not, you know, come out next year with, um, and I, and I think I think the other thing you you mentioned about the speaker is one of the things that is going to emerge for us nationally early next year is that the speaker has been Mike Johnson has introduced repeatedly a bill to ban abortion nationally with no exceptions. He is among the most right wing extremist political figures in America on women's reproductive freedom. And we will be able to say with a straight face that will be true that if the Republicans keep the House and win the presidency, that a national abortion ban with no exceptions is likely to pass. That polls at about 15%, by the way. Not only is it horrific policy, but it's among the most unpopular things that anybody has proposed in recent American history. Um, and so I, I think that, again, part of the reason I think there's a quiet confidence in the Democratic family right now is that we have more tools to define them as being out of the mainstream than any group of operatives have ever had in modern American history, because they are so extreme. They have been overtaken by extremists. It is a party that's, you know, where you've got Mitt Romney a year out saying he's not voting for Trump. I mean, we've never seen anything like this before in, in our politics, the level of opposition internally in the Republican Party, because it, it's and it's earned, right? This is the Republican Party, the party of Lincoln and Reagan has been overtaken by extremists and extremism. And one of the things I like to say, David, is that the party of Lincoln and Reagan will now be forever the party that also tried to overturn an American election and end American democracy. We should be able to beat these guys next year. They've given us enough tools and ammunition. And Joe Biden has been a good president. The country's better off. Our party is strong. You know, we should be able to do this next year. You know, talking to you makes me feel uh, better, um, and uh, I'm I'm grateful. You know, it's the holiday season. Uh, I think that's one of the little gifts we can send out to everybody as they look ahead to the to to next year. I have to say, among the most disturbing things is how fast it is from when we were talking about, you know, last year to now. You know how you know how fast it is when we were talking about two years ago to now. So, um, you know, this is all going to be it's coming quick. It's coming quick. I mean, the the and let me just say one last thing, David, and I'll do it quick. Um, 
2023 was an amazing year for Democrats, right? We took away the Wisconsin Supreme Court seat. We took away Colorado Springs and Jacksonville, Florida. We took away state legislative and state Senate seats and, and chambers all across the country. We took away uh, school board seats and mayoralties all across the country. We took away the six-week abortion ban in Ohio, right? We just flipped the Virginia House and did deep damage to Yunkin, one of the boy, you know, the, the rising stars of the Republican Party. This was a blue year. We had a blue wave that crested over the country for the entire year all across the country. It was a remarkable year for us. And we should, just like the economy is sort of, you know, and you and I have an obligation as two guys have been in this for a long time. I mean, we know how strong the American economy is. The idea that there could be any other interpretation other than this is almost a miraculous recovery from COVID and Ukraine war and supply chain problems. It's just, it's, it's ridiculous that we're even having this conversation that, they, that we could have an interpretation of what's happened in America other than we're doing a really good job and Joe Biden's been a good president. The same is true of the Democratic Party, right? This run we've been on, winning in 2018 by eight and a half points, in, unseating an incumbent president, winning back the Senate, right? Winning that election by four and a half points, outperforming all expectations in 2022, having this blue year in 2023. It's been a remarkable run. And it's why, again, when I look at all this, I'm deeply optimistic about what we can do next year. I think our advantages are structural. They're beyond any individual candidate. And it's because the Republicans have abandoned an enormous amount of demographic and geographic real estate that's now available to us. We just saw this play out all across the country in 2023. And so I just as we end, enter this holiday season... I want to end with just this dose of hopium, right? That, you know, we are doing really well as a party. The country is kicking ass. We should be really proud. And part of our job, David, and our collective work that we do is we have to give the American people permission to love their country again. And I, and I really think that in some ways, this is the most important job we have because MAG is trying every day to prevent that from happening. They're talking down the country. We need to talk it up. I think it's at the end of the day, how we really defeat them. And why, again, I'm so optimistic as we head into 2024. Um, that Thank you. Uh, but you always say, you know, we've been doing this a long time. And I'd just like to test that. Who was the first candidate you voted for? Uh, in the presidential election was um, was uh, Mondale, right? And I voted for Mondale in 1984. Yes, yeah, see, but I edged you out by voting, and this just goes to show my unbelievably good political acumen for John Anderson in 1980. Um, it, it's just an uncanny sense, and now here we are. <laughs> but David, I, mean, I remember the Paul Sangas campaign. <laughs> I loved that. You know, I was the, you know, po policy director of the Evan Bayh campaign. So that was a huge hit. So can I tell um, you something, David? Let me let me end with this for your listeners. So I've been in this game since the Dukakis campaign. Right? I worked on the Dukakis campaign and I've been involved in democratic politics since. All nine of the candidates that I've endorsed in the primary since 1988, all won the Democratic primary. Not all of them went on to go. Holy moly. Yeah, every single time. Everyone that I endorsed, many of them I worked for, and was you know beyond just endorsing. So my track record at the presidential level is actually good inside the Democratic primary. Things happened in the general that were 
beyond our control. But I want to, I'll close with this, which is that in the last four presidential elections, Democrats have averaged 51% of the vote. Republicans have averaged 46% of the vote. We've been averaging five points better than them over four elections. So it means that Trump has to break that math. He has to somehow get beyond, you know, when he got, you know, he only got 46% of the vote last time, right? That 51% that we've averaged over the last four elections, the last time we did that was during FDR's four presidencies, four presidential elections. We're in the best popular vote run that we've been on as a party since the 1930s and 1940s. The burden is on the Republicans to prove how they can break through this strong popular vote run we've been on. We've won the popular vote more seven out of eight times in the last eight elections. They've only broken 48% of the vote one time in all those elections in 2004. And so Trump getting up into the high 40s, which is what he's going to need to do to get up to win this election, he would be the first Republican in 20 years to do that, only the second Republican since 1988 to do it. And I just don't believe that this guy is going to be able to do it. No, he's, he's definitely not. Can I get credit from you because you are clearly the Midas touch for having supported Kamala Harris in the last primary round? I mean, that's kind of halfway, right? I mean, she is vice president. She so. is. You get credit. I, 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 that counts. I, I think that's that okay. counts. Yeah. I mean, that okay. counts. That offsets. I was with Biden before Iowa. I mean, I was there, you know, in the early days and, uh, you know, when it was, when it looked bleak, I mean, that it is, it is still amazing how, you know, if you go back in 2020, that, you know, given what happened to him in Iowa, New Hampshire, the fact that he won was incredible, actually. And it's why it's why I'm not, you know, I think the campaign's a little bit too smug about this, to be honest, the way they talk about, well, you know, we were down, you can't count Biden out. But, but I think we're in a different place now. And I think the stakes of this election are so high. And that for all of your listeners, the most important thing is make your plans for how you're going to be involved next year. And whether you, you know, you do your work for Joe Biden, whether you pick a few states that you want to work in, pick five house races where you make phone calls and give money, whatever it is, start developing your strategy for how you're going to engage and help next year. Now, don't wait. It's We need to get working right away in early next year. And there's a lot of work to do. And the reason we've been doing so well is because millions of your fellow Americans have been going to work. They've been given money and making phone calls and writing postcards and canvassing and doing all the things. There's been an explosion of citizen engagement in this country. Um, and it's made a big difference. It's why we keep performing at the upper end of what's possible. It's because the American people themselves have made a decision that they're not going to let their democracy slip away. And this is a bottom-up strength of the Democratic Party. This is not top-down. There's not, you know, This is not something where the generals are leading the battle. The American people are leading this battle, and it's why I another reason why I'm so optimistic about what we're going to be able to do next year. Because David, we're not alone. There's millions and millions of us who are getting up every day, you know, making sure their democracy doesn't slip away. And we've been winning, and it's been very successful. And we've got one more big job to do next year. Absolutely right. Give your kids the gift of democracy yeah. in 2024. Just devote a few hours a week, a little money. Uh, but do it every week. It'll make a giant difference. Yep. Um, and uh, hopefully throughout all that, we'll be back talking to uh, Simon, because I know I can use the uh, the the lift, uh, whether you consider Simon uh, the purveyor of hopium or just a very strong dose of Lexapro. It helps <laughs> us. Uh, 
it helps us all. So thank you for that, Simon. <laughs> thank you, everybody, for listening. Thanks, and Tim. come back again soon. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.